Welcome to Language During Mealtime. Certified speech-language pathologist and children's book author Becca Eisenberg brings you creative professionals from the language learning and children's education field. With these ideas, parents can help their children with special needs improve language and reading abilities. Hi, my name is Becca Eisenberg. Welcome to my podcast, Language During Mealtime, episode number 59. Today, I'll be interviewing author and autism advocate, Jen Melia. Jen is an associate professor of English at Norfolk University. Her essays about her life as an autistic woman and mom have appeared in New York Times, New York Magazine, The Washington Post, Women's Day, and Glamour. Today, we'll be talking about her picture book titled Too Sticky, Sensory Issues with Autism. To learn more about Jen, visit her website at jenmalia.com. So welcome, Jen. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Becca. So I'm really excited to talk about your book because I I just, I think it's a wonderful book. um, And I'm really, I just, I think it's just, I'm just excited for you to talk about it because I think that um, a lot of the stuff, a lot of people ask me as a speech pathologist, like, well, what are sensory issues? So I think that your book really um, represents some of those sensory issues really, really well. And also how the characters in the book, you know, deal with those sensory issues. So the first thing I want to talk to you about was just to ask you what inspired you to write the children's book, Too Sticky, Sensory Issues with Autism? Yeah, so I actually never intended to be a children's book author, to be honest. I started out writing personal essays um, for, you know, the publications you mentioned. And I actually got the opportunity to write this book because um, after writing all of those essays, there was an illustrator who knew of a publisher who was looking for an author to write a book about sensory issues with autism. And so I um, had that opportunity and wrote the manuscript. And when I was thinking about it, I decided, well, okay, I'm going to draw from my own personal experience because I have a lot of sensory issues with my autism and my daughter does as well and my son. So what I did was um, I tried to think of a scenario where, you know, that really bothered me growing up. And one of them was sticky hands. And it's still a problem for me. But just having like the different sensations from touching things like, um, well, slime was the one that I came up with. I always really liked science, though, too, as a kid. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to put her in the classroom and she's going to be, you know, really... um, worried about touching the slime. And I kind of included also a scene in the beginning where she's with her parents and gets sticky syrup on her hands. So a lot of the um, different autistic traits that my character Holly has in the book is based on sort of a combination of the things that I've seen in my children, but also some of my own um, sensory issues as well. And so for people who haven't read the book, could you just give a quick synopsis of the book? Yeah, sure. So the so my main character, Holly, she's an autistic girl with sensory issues, and she's in second grade. And the um, the main sort of the thing that she needs to do is to find a way to cope with her sensory issues so that she can complete the science experiment, which is a slime experiment in class. So it kind of goes through her journey and shows the ways in which her parents and her teacher and her classmates support her and the, the different things that coping mechanisms that she has found along the way to help herself as well. 
Yeah. What I liked, what I liked about the book was that she knew she was, you know, she was worried about the slime and what it was going to feel like. But, you know, her mom had advocated for her just asking the teacher to, you know, give her some water and soap just to be able to wash her hands. Um, but what I loved about it is how Hallie worked through her, like her anxiety about the slime and, and decided to kind of take a chance and see what it was like. Because I think, and also ultimately it was Hallie that decided to touch the slime. Because I think, you know, as, as a provider, um, you know, I've worked with children and adults with autism for 20 years. And one of the things that I, you know, I always say is that we, you know, we can encourage kids to do something. No, we can encourage kids, but ultimately it's them who's going to have to make the decision. Right. So, um, what I, I loved about that, I, I really love that she kind of went beyond her fears and she really, she overcame her fears and she touched the slime and she wound up liking it. Yeah, that's, that is definitely something I wanted to portray in the book. I didn't want it to be, um, there's a, there's a lot of books I think that, that deal with, um, you know, sort of, um, maybe more written for kids to, who want to, um, cope with the autism of a sibling. Um, that's sort of a, a theme that I see in a lot of books where the main character is not the autistic, um, child. It's, it's maybe a sibling who, who is interacting with an autistic child and helping them through things. But I wanted to really show it from the point of view of an autistic child who, in you know, her own experiences and the things that she has learned along the way to help her cope. So she uses a stress ball and she learns breathing techniques from her parents that she uses to help calm herself down. And then she also has her mom, like you said, advocating for her and her teacher saying things like, well, um, doesn't a scientist like to, you know, test the experiment and sort of encouraging her to, to touch the slime, but at no point telling her that she has to or forcing her to do so. And I think that's really important, as you mentioned, because it's in a lot of ways, at least for me, I didn't know I was autistic until I got diagnosed in my late thirties. But for me, a lot of things growing up were really difficult and I didn't know why. But it does, I think, help a lot to, um, you know, especially I wrote this book for my kids so that they could see themselves in a book, to have a book that autistic kids can relate to. And a lot of the readers that I have, I'm hearing from parents saying that their kids, they can see themselves in, you know, in this, um, this character that I've created, Holly, that they, they identify with her. And they hopefully will feel that they can try new things and um, help themselves get through difficult situations like my main character Holly does in the book. Right. And the thing is what I also liked about it, kind of just, just thinking about it is that, you know, a lot of times people are like, oh, well, you know, let's say this particular child has sensory issues. So we're just going to avoid those activities altogether. But what I liked about your book is that it wasn't, you know, cause they could have easily, the mother easily could have said, listen, um, Hallie doesn't like sticky hands. So don't have her. I'm going to take her out of the slime activity altogether because I don't want her to even get anxious about the slime. But what what I took from it was that you know she she worked through her anxiety, but like she like the the mother and the teacher also had her participate in the activity and let her choose her how she wanted to participate. She just didn't avoid it altogether. Because I think that sometimes happens too. We kind of make decisions for kids and we say, oh, they don't like that, you know? Um, but sometimes they, given the opportunity, they, they can like something that we didn't realize that they would like it. 
So um, I feel like that's just another good point about the book that I really liked. And I think, you know, what you're talking about with characters, I think that's another thing that we could teach kids is maybe if they're worried about something, we could say, oh, well, Holly did it. Holly tried this line. So maybe you could try this food. Or maybe you could even have the food on your plate and it would be okay. And then maybe next time you could try it. So I think that's, that's just another take from the book um, as well. So I think I could see kids relating to that. Um, so could you tell me just about the process in getting your daughter diagnosed with autism? And I know that it was really, you know, interesting in the fact that you also got diagnosed on the same day. So, and there's a great, uh, New York times article and I'm going to have the link in the, in the post as well that you could check it out. It's a, it's a very, very good article, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about it. Yeah. So, um, I, I didn't know that. I mean, at first it wasn't something that anyone pointed out to me. Like there wasn't a professional who said, well, I think your daughter might be on the autism spectrum. I mean, in fact, it was the complete opposite where, um, around 18 months, my, my daughter started having a lot of really intense, um, meltdowns. And I didn't, I mean, I didn't know even that, you know, that term for it at the time, but she was having these crying fits. They were often 45 minutes long, um, lots of you know, going nonverbal and grunting during these meltdowns. And most of them were actually in the house. And so it was something that when I went to seek professionals, you know, help from professionals, um, I didn't really, I didn't have a lot of support because no one really thought when they saw her, I would take her in for an appointment. Um, her pediatrician never saw any um, behaviors that indicated autism. And then um, when I took her to, but, you know, he made the referrals I requested. I took her to a developmental pediatrician. And um, I kept being told that she had a language delay, but they didn't think it was anything more than that. And so it wasn't until I got to a clinical psychologist that was more familiar with some of the um, gender differences with autism that I was able to get her, her diagnosis. And even that process, I think, is difficult because some of the testing instruments that they use, they use the ADOS, which is the often considered the gold standard for um, an autism diagnosis. In a lot of cases, um, girls that tend to mask some of their autistic traits and um, you know, maybe make better eye contact or don't have some of those same stereotypical features that we often think of with autism, like hand flapping and rocking back and forth. A lot of times, um, girls and you know, women um, sometimes have different, they don't necessarily um, interact the same in public as they may do in, in private situations. And so there, there tends to be a lot of um, what, what I refer to and a lot of others refer to as masking, where they're able to sort of pick up on different social cues and um, not necessarily, like they're more aware of sometimes their environment and in certain situations are able to, to mask those traits. So that was one thing that um, was really difficult because my daughter... Um, once, once, but once she got her diagnosis and I was diagnosed on the same day, you know, as a contrast, a year later, my son, who then he was two years old when he was diagnosed just a year after my daughter and I, and when I took him in, he did have this more stereotypical features like the hand flapping, his eye contact wasn't as, as strong as my daughter's. And so there were other things that he was doing that were more stereotypical of autism and it was a lot easier to secure his diagnosis. So not just because we already had it in the family, but also because he had a lot of the traits that people think of when they think of autism. 
Right. I think you bring up a really good point because, you know, just talking about the difference between girls and boys with autism. And I know you've done a lot of research on your own. So, I mean, from a parent's perspective, you know, you talked about eye contact, you talked about social cues, but is there any other differences that you find, you know, that you would want to, let's say, talk to, like, tell other parents about to kind of, you know, that, that you found to be a pretty noticeable difference? I also noticed that, um, and this one's more, I mean, I guess we could start by also saying that autism doesn't have a look to it because a lot of people will say, well, you don't look autistic. But that's that's not a compliment to say that because a lot of times 90% of what an autistic person, um, you know, is feeling or the things that are difficult with their autism, 90% of it is usually not something you can see. And so a lot of the differences that I notice is, is more through not, you know, not seeing the differences between my daughter and my son, but more just over time understanding, you know, the, the, the difficulty they have with things like language or um, with um, executive functioning, which is basically the, how the brain controls and manages information. Um, so with executive functioning, for example, my daughter has a lot more trouble with um, things like going through a bedtime routine or remembering the sequence or order of different different, um, you know, tasks or adaptive behaviors and things like that. So um, I did write a piece for the for New York um, Magazine in The Cut, which was about um, some, some of the main differences with um, executive functioning for girls that are on the autism spectrum, because studies have found that girls do tend to have more difficulty with executive functioning than boys do on the spectrum. And a lot of times people think of executive functioning um, as something that's more typical of ADHD, but in fact, a lot of um, a lot of autistic um, girls tend to have those struggles as well. So I, I for for one, have a lot of difficulty with that too. Um, with you know focusing and keeping my attention, um, you know, being able to organize information in a way that um, you know just I have to use a lot of different things to keep things. Uh, to keep myself on task, I guess, is the best way, you know, being able to, to determine how to focus on different tasks in order to complete them. Those are things that I find my daughter has a lot of difficulty with. So a lot of times it's that observed behavior. It's not so much something you can see, but over time you can kind of notice the things that, you know, you, you understand that over time that maybe, you know, my, my daughter seems to have some difficulty with auditory processing as well, which is something that I have difficulty with. So if I tell her to do something or ask her to do something, um, it's hard for her sometimes to translate that spoken language into, you know, if, it's, if it requires writing something down, you know, kind of translating that information into to a written format. Or, you know, you can imagine how that also translate, translates at school when you're being asked to do something and then you have to, you know, use, you know, use handwriting to complete the task. There's a lot of different skills that are involved. And, you know, so that sort of auditory processing is really difficult sometimes for, for uh, my daughter as well. Yeah. And I just noticed just from, um, you know, the more, the more you're talking kind of about executive functioning, auditory processing, just about the effects of also virtual learning, being able to kind of give that support through the remote learning. I know a lot of people have struggled with that. I, actually, I was just recently, um, 
I was recently writing about that as far as executive functioning with remote learning um, has been, I think, a big topic that I've been kind of thinking about and discussing with other people recently. Um, so I'm just glad you brought up, I'm glad you brought up that point um, about executive functioning. So the, the next thing I wanted to ask you was about, you know, just any advice for parents um, of children with different sensory issues. Like, I know that's like a kind of very general question, but I was wondering if you could give some sort of like tips and advice based on your experience and your research about how to handle um, or how to manage different sensory issues, you know, like versus like, are we avoiding them? Are we going to, you know, expose them to it slowly over time? Or, you know, I, I was just wondering, just because based on your own experiences, because not only do you have children who struggle with it, but you've also struggled with it yourself, which I think gives a really unique perspective. So I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, sure. So some of the sensory issues, so just name a few others that I have. Um, I have a lot of trouble walking on hard surfaces. So I don't like when my feet like touch. Um, as Growing up, we had tile floors in our kitchen and I always would sort of tiptoe across that or wear slippers. And now in my home, I have a lot of hardwood floors and it's the same thing. I got to use these like foam padded slippers just to walk on my own floor at home. And so there's, there's different things that, um, I, I like to think of it as my, my kids don't necessarily have all the same sensory issues that I do because I see them, you know, they're perfectly fine walking across our hardwood floors with no, no socks, shoes, anything on. Um, but they have different ones that maybe I don't have. And sometimes it's just a matter of observing what they might be. So noises bother, I think all of us, loud noises is definitely, um, difficult and we all, I, I tend to have more light sensitivity issues. So I wear a lot of, I wear sunglasses everywhere I go. Whereas I see my, my son and daughter, sometimes they'll be requesting sunglasses, but I'm the type of person who won't even leave the house if I don't have a pair of sunglasses because it's that severe. So um, I just kind of observe also when I'm taking my kids places, it, I have to kind of sense their anxiety over things like, is it too loud here or is it too crowded here? Um, are there, you know, if I notice that they're starting to get anxious then sometimes I need to change the environment. So for example, if, um, if my daughter has a meltdown at home, I'll often, um, close the blinds to, you know, to make it a little darker in the room and also make sure that I'm not talking to her because even any ex extra noise can escalate the meltdown. So there's just a lot of different things that I think come into play depending on the environment, like where you are at the time. But a lot of times um, it's not something autistic kids will often verbalize. So you have to kind of cue into what is the things that are in their environment that might actually be difficult for them. Right. I mean, I think that's a lot of the work that I'm working on with my clients is just, you know, giving them the language. Because I know that, you know, there are certain things that make them upset, but then giving them the language for that, I think is, I think is really important. I, I wanted to ask you just about um, the mask wearing. I know that's been um, really difficult for some of the families I've been working with, getting their children to wear masks, because it, it can be, you know, as, as far as like sensory wise, not feel, it, it does take time to get used to for anybody. Um, what, what has been your experience as far as wearing a mask or your kids wearing a mask? 
Well, I actually have, um, haven't had any difficulty with getting any of my kids to wear masks. So they're readily, um, like, and also their ages, I've got a five-year-old, a seven-year-old and an eight-year-old. And they all, um, you know, the first time that we took them out and put a mask on, they, they didn't have an issue with it. I was kind of surprised. And I think the biggest issue is actually just leaving it on. And it's not because they're bothered by it, but just, it's like this thing that's just, you know, not something they're norm normally have on their face. And they're not really thinking about, oh, you know, moving it around because it's just something like, even if they had a hat on, they'd be doing the same thing. So a lot of it's just kind of, in my experience with my kids, it's just letting them know the importance of why they have it on and, you know, keeping, keep, I keep reminding them, okay, let's not move it around. Like you're taking it off your nose and, you know, things like that. But I would say that, um, a lot of times practicing it might be helpful. Like if I had, if my kids were more reluctant to wear them, um, I would probably just, even when we're going outside and having them put it on for a short period of time just to get used to it before going out to a place where, you know, it really is important to keep it on. So I've, I've, but I have been lucky in that my kids have taken to it um, and not had any issues with it so far. Yeah, that's good. Cause I know for a lot of the families I work with, it's been really difficult and then they can't take their child's places because they, the child won't keep a mask on. Um, so that has been one of the issues, but I know that um, definitely, I think practicing at home has you know, definitely helped for sure for a lot of the families. Um, just kind of getting back to your book a little bit. I was just curious about, you know, why you chose, you know, the, the slime in the book um, versus like another substance. Is it because, you know, like that you like science or was it the consistency of the slime? I was just kind of curious about like why you chose slime in the book. Well, there's actually, well, two reasons. I guess the first one would just be that I think a lot of kids like it's just a, I think something that, um, a lot of kids like. So in other words, there's lots of kids who just love slime. If you just say the word slime, there's a lot of kids that are like, Oh, I love slime. But then I thought, well, you know, I, I have a lot of trouble with sticky hands and it's something that I don't particularly like myself. And I know that there's a lot of other autistic kids too, that have difficulty with sticky hands and maybe don't like slime as much or, or worried about at least the stickiness of slime. But it's for me, it's always like it's always been that I think it's really sticky. But as Holly and my character finds out in the book, it's not really as sticky as you think. It just seems like it would be something really sticky. So I kind of wanted to explore that in the book where she has all these fears about, oh, it's going to be sticky like syrup. But then as it turns out, it's more like a solid when you squeeze it in your hands and that sort of runs through your fingers when, you know, when, before you, before you, um, before you squeeze it. And so I wanted her to kind of play around and explore, you know, the different properties of slime. And I wanted her to be a character that, um, that had a really big interest in, she loves science experiments, but then having, um, a fear of sticky hands and how that interplay with her desire to learn about science, but also her fear of getting her hands sticky, like how that would play out. So that was really the main reason that I that I chose slime because I thought a lot of kids would be immediately interested in reading a book that had something to do with slime, but also would learn about the properties of slime, you know, just in the narrative itself, not in a kind of direct way, but an indirect way they would learn things about slime and then also understand better the sensory issues with autism. Right. There's also a slime recipe in the book as well. I also want to just add that, um, 
add that in another, another good, um, activity to do over the summer. So, cause I know a lot of parents are looking for different activities for the summer. Um, so, well, thank you so much. Shay. Is there anything that you wanted to kind of add before we finish up today? No, I think we covered a lot. I'm, I'm really glad that you um, invited me to come. This is great. Well, thank you for being on because I, I just, I love your book. And I think it's not only great for um, autistic children. I also think it's just great to be read in any classroom because I think that, you know, kids need, kids are very, I think, you know, understanding and they want to support their classmates. Um, I've seen this because, you know, I work in schools and the kids want to help. They want to understand. They want to be there for their friends. And I think a lot of times we just sort of like avoid the subject um, and not really explain it to the kids. And I think that your book is a really nice tool to help um, help other children understand some of kind of the thoughts, let's say, that Holly had about the slime that um, and, you know, and how how much that was, I mean, to go through and to kind of, and, you know, may not be a big deal for, you know, you think about from an adult's perspective to touch slime, but for a kid who's, um, who's anxious about that to kind of, to overcome that, I I think is something to be proud of. And I, I also find that, you know, the parents at the end are very proud of her as well, as well as her sister. So I, I think it's just a great tool to be used in, you know, kind of any classroom. So to raise awareness and to explain it to the kids, because I always say like, we need to explain these different things to the classmates so they can be a good friend and they can understand. Um, Because without understanding and awareness, how would they know? You know, how would they know how Holly is, you know, how Holly is feeling? Um, So anyway, but um, well, thank you so much for today. And thank you for listening. Listen and learn with us at Language During Mealtime. 